Well, welcome again to church. We're really, really glad you're here. My name is Matt, the senior pastor. Love what the Lord is doing in hearts. We're going to jump in in a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about a recent whitewater rafting trip that we took. It was about two weeks ago. Uh, if we, uh, my favorite part about this picture are the faces. Are we totally zoomed in on the faces? There we go, a little bit. Uh, the, in, in my particular raft were five of our pastors. Uh, there on the front left, of course, is our left, is Pastor Caleb. I think that face looks like he's smelling something that really stinks. Um, Pastor Mike Graham on the right looks like he's about to get hit by a bus. Uh, Matt Garrison, I don't know what he's doing. Pastor Matt looks like he's got like his inner Chuck Norris going or something there on the right. I look like I'm about to have surgery. And uh, John King is the back. John is our executive pastor. He is actually a trained guide on the New River. He did it for five years in college. He was recently recertified. So he took us on one of our pastor retreats. Uh, we had a really, really good time. I think John King is a lot like Matthew McConaughey. He's just always chill. Everything is always all right, all right, all right with John. And uh, he was a great guy. Did a really, really good job. But shortly down the river, he, he told us that we had potential. Evidently, we had some strength in the boat, and so we probably, he said, have some potential to do some extra fun things today. Well, typically when you hear somebody say they're going to do something extra fun or they have potential, that usually means they're about on their way to the emergency room. Um, but he thought we could do something that's called surfing. How many of you have been whitewater rafting before on the New River? How many of you have actually done surfing where you try to like lay beneath a waterfall and let it just keep you there? It sounded like a terrible idea to me, actually. Uh, but so anyway, we did surfing. And as we're going back up river, all the smart people were going down river. But as we started to float back up river into a waterfall, he said, paddle with everything you've got. Just paddle with everything you've got. And we're going to try to see if the waterfall can hold us in place. But he warned us there's a possibility that it could actually flip us. And so if he, he had a certain command, he says that if something's about to happen, uh, be ready to jump on one side of the boat to stabilize the whole thing. Well, I was really feeling out of control at that moment. And so as they're paddling into the waterfall, Mike was leaning up on the front, standing up, no joke, standing up on the front into this waterfall. He bent his paddle. I've never seen anybody bend a paddle, but he was paddling so hard against the rock that he bent his paddle. Um, Pastor Caleb, every time I saw him, I don't know if he's still in here or not, but he always looked like when he was holding his paddle, like he was holding his guitar. He, he, he really didn't paddle. He, he finessed, like, he like, kind of like played his paddle. Don't tell him I said that if he's not in here. And, uh, you know, Matt Garrison, man, he was on it. He was Mr. Business the entire time. But again, I'm scared to death. So I thought the smart thing for me to do was be to stay in the center of the raft and, and just kind of hold everything together. That way I'm ready to lean to one side or the next. Now, they accused me later of being in the fetal position in the center of the raft, hanging on to that big crossbar. Don't believe them either. That's not true. And so as we're going up there paddling, and, and I'm in the center of the raft, we couldn't quite get it, and we, the waterfall kicked us out. A few seconds later, we went back into the, to the, the, the waterfall, and it kicked us back out. Finally, on the third approach, Matt Garrison noticed that I wasn't paddling. And he let me have it, right? Like, you know, get up, quit crying like a baby, get your oar, and paddle. Everybody has to row if this is going to work. And while that, that's true on the river, that's also true in church. Everybody has to paddle if this is going to work. 
And as I read Ephesians chapter 4, I read God's call to the church for everybody to jump in, for everybody to belong, for, for everybody to serve, and how that everybody is important to the life and ministry of the work of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do. In the next few minutes, I want to give you six quick reasons why you are important. Six quick reasons why you are important. And then I'm going to close with an application, a practical step we can all take uh, at the end of the service. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, if you would stand with me out of respect for God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, actually in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's the big idea that we're going to look at for the next few minutes from this passage. It's simply this. No person is identical, but every person is important. No person is identical, but every person is important. Now, why am I, why are you important to the life and ministry of this church? Why are you important to the work of God? Well, there's six reasons we see. Number one, I'm important because Jesus has uniquely gifted me. Jesus has uniquely gifted me. In verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Jesus has uniquely gifted me. Coming out of Ephesians 4, he talks about the unity that we have in the gospel, the unity that we have in Christ. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's this sense of oneness. I preached about it last week. You can see it online or on the app. But now as he moves into verse 7, it's like he's shifting into a new paragraph, a, a different thought, a related thought, but a different thought. And that is that unity is not the same thing as uniformity. God values unity, but he also values diversity. And so both aspects are seen in Ephesians 4. He tells us in this verse that he gives us two gifts. The first gift is the gift of grace. He says, God has given us all grace. Of course, referring primarily to those who put their faith in Christ, we have received God's saving grace. So you have received the grace of God. What is it? One of the best definitions I've heard of grace is its comparison with mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, like a punishment, a penalty. 
But grace is getting a blessing that you don't deserve. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It's God's sovereign generosity. It's something that we didn't earn. It's something that we didn't somehow deserve because we were smart enough, because we were strategic enough. God just gave us his grace as a gift. And that one word actually sums up the entire gospel. Many times the doctrine of the gospel is referred to simply as the doctrine of grace. There's different ways to define the gospel. Colossians chapter 1 defines the gospel with these 10 words or these, these movements that you hear us talk a lot about that God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, and God restores. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul defines the gospel as Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. One theologian by the name of J.I. Packer says the gospel can be summed up in three words, God saves sinners. But here, we're just summing up the gospel in one word, God gave us his grace. But not only did God give us a grace, but in context, God also has given us gifts, spiritual gifts, things that, that are unique to each of us that enable us to serve the Lord in greater ways. What is a spiritual gift? Here's a good definition. They are God-given abilities empowered by the Holy Spirit for the building up of God's church and the transformation of the world. Spiritual gifts are God-given abilities empowered by the Holy Spirit for the building up of God's church and the transformation of the world. Now, when we look at spiritual gifts in the Bible, there's about 19 listed in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12 is a great chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a great chapter. Some of them overlap. There's a few mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 4, but there's 19 spiritual gifts mentioned in all. Most scholars believe that God's not saying there are only 19 spiritual gifts, but in essence, he's giving us examples. There's probably hundreds or thousands of different kinds of spiritual gift combinations. But he's simply saying, remember that your spiritual giftedness, your supernatural abilities to serve the Lord come from the Lord himself. Now, one of the questions that people sometimes ask is, what's the difference between natural abilities and spiritual gifts? Is there really a difference? For instance, somebody who's good working with their hands before they become a Christian, and they do a lot of good for the community. They become a Christian, and now they're working with their hands to build things for the glory of God. So we say their spiritual gift may be serving, or their spiritual gift may be building. And really an objective look at the Bible and, and life would go, wait a minute, if we don't get our spiritual gifts until after we become a Christian, wasn't that guy also good working with his hands before he became a Christian? And I think a good illustration to, to help bring these thoughts together is that of a glove. If you have a glove in your hand, it's still a glove whether it's in your hand or on your hand. But it's a whole lot more useful when it's on your hand and not just in your hand. We're all born essentially with gloves on our hands. We're born with certain abilities and talents and personalities. But what the Lord wants to do at salvation is fill us to take over every aspect of our lives so that what we used to do, maybe with our talents and abilities, we now can do to the glory of Jesus Christ. And he grows us to impact people in unique ways. I love what Eugene Peterson says about our uniqueness of gifting. He says, in the life and of faith, each person 
discovers all the elements of a unique and original adventure. We're prevented from following in one another's footsteps, and we are called to an incomparable association with Christ. The Bible makes it clear that every time there's a story of faith, it is completely original. God's creative genius genius is endless. He never, fatigued and unable to maintain the rigors of creativity, resorts to mass-producing copies. Why are you important to the life of this church? Because God has uniquely gifted you. And there are tests you can take, and there are surveys you can take. And if you're interested in any of that, you can email me this week, and we'll email you that. But the best way to determine your spiritual gift is just to jump in where there's an opportunity. If there's something about this church that you feel there's needs not being met, you can jump in and meet those needs. And more than likely, in doing so, you'll discover your spiritual gift. You're important to the life of this church. Why else are you important? Well, he gives us a second reason here in verse 8. Number two, when I use my gifts, I prove that Jesus arose and ascended into heaven. I prove that Jesus arose and ascended into heaven. Notice verse 8. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, if I were writing a paper on six reasons why you're important to the life of this church, I would not have included verses 8 through 10. I just wouldn't have. I wouldn't have thought about it. So this week, as I'm digging into Ephesians 4, I'm scratching my head thinking, God, why in this big chapter of gifting and unity and diversity do you talk about what you did at the ascension or what you did by coming to the earth? The more I studied it, I have to share a little bit with you to help you understand why this is such a big deal for Paul and why it's such a big deal for us. Imagine, if you will, you're one of Jesus's early disciples. You walked with Jesus. You talked with Jesus. You camped out with Jesus. And you saw him die on the cross, but then you saw him rise from the grave. You visited the empty tomb, you you ate with him, you heard him preach and teach for 40 days after, and you know he's about to step back into that heavenly dimension. He's about to go back to be with his father. And so as you ascend the Mount of Olives, the place where he is going to ascend into heaven, you're both excited and you're nervous, right? You're just really downright scared because you don't know what's about to happen next. The higher you go on the Mount of Olives, the cooler it gets, The breeze begins to blow in. You can see the the lights of a thousand lanterns down in Jerusalem below begin to be placed in the windows of their homes. You hear the sound of a blacksmith uh, making his last, uh, doing his last work for the night. The smells are familiar. Uh, The sights are familiar. The sounds are familiar. And Jesus on the top of the Mount of Olives holds up his hand and he gives you and hundreds of others one final benediction. He says, you'll receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And then a fog rolls in, a familiar fog. 
You saw that same fog when, when Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration speaking with his father. You're, you're familiar with what's about to happen. And, and at that time, the fog envelops Jesus and he's lifted up and he disappears as he steps back into that heavenly dimension. And you're scratching your head, kind of like looking up, wondering when he's going to come back. And an angel appears and he says, this same Jesus, just as he ascended into heaven, one day is going to come back into heaven and then you begin to remember all of Jesus' teachings. Jesus told you that the reason he had to go physically back to heaven is so that spiritually he could give the Holy Spirit to his church all over the world at the same time. Jesus physically was only in one place at one time, but by ascending and giving his spirit, he, Jesus is in all of us through his spirit at all times. Those of us that have put our faith in Christ the New Testament teaches that because Jesus did that, that's why we can all have spiritual gifts. We can have spiritual gifts because Jesus ascended into heaven like a, a, a victorious general, and he gave us the Spirit, and with the Spirit comes all of his gifts. The picture that Paul is using here, we're for 21st century minds, as we read verses 8 through 10, we kind of scratch our heads saying, what's he talking about? But 2,000 years ago, they would have had no problem understanding what he's talking about. The picture was of a Roman general who had conquered a neighboring city or a neighboring nation. He would bring all the spoils back in wagons, and there would be stacks, and there would be wagons, and as the Roman general would ride through his home city, or maybe even Rome himself, the, so itself, the soldiers would throw these presents out to all the citizens who had lined the streets. Think of it kind of like Oprah Winfrey. You get a present, and you get a present, and you get a sword, and you get a shield, whatever they were giving out. That's the picture of Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. He is saying Jesus ascended into heaven like a victorious Roman general, and because of that, he distributed his gifts to all of us. Now, verse 10 is a simple point, and it's just simply that in order for Jesus to die on the cross, raise from the grave, and ascend into heaven, he had to first be born. Notice what verse 9 and 10 says. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. In my devotional Bible, I wrote Christmas beside verses 9 and 10. When he talks about descending to the lower parts, that's just a fancy name for the earth. There's other passages in the scriptures that talk about what Jesus did between his death and resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 3 is one of those. This is not 1 Peter 3. He's simply saying Jesus came on Christmas so that he could die on Good Friday, so that he could rise from the grave on Easter, and 40 days later he could ascend into heaven to give you spiritual gifts. One New Testament scholar by the name of Wayne Grudem writes this, the NIV rendering is preferable in this context because Paul is saying that Christ who went up to heaven in his ascension is the same one who earlier came down from heaven. That descent from heaven occurred, of course, when Christ came to be born as a man. So the verse speaks of the incarnation, not of a descent into hell. That's for another discussion from another Bible passage at another time. But God has given you gifts. Let's bring it home. 
He is saying that whenever you exercise your spiritual gift, you're declaring to the world that you believe Jesus is alive. When you change a dirty diaper in the nursery, you know what you're declaring? Probably declaring a lot of things. I declared a lot of things when I had to change dirty diapers. Uh, my wife changed far more than me, so I want to honor her right now by saying that. Uh, but changing dirty, changing dirty diapers is um, it's hard work, right? But when you change a dirty diaper, you're declaring, hey, I believe Jesus is alive. When you serve in coffee ministry, you're saying, I believe Jesus is alive. Hey, whenever you write a note of encouragement to somebody who's discouraged, you're saying Jesus is alive. Our spiritual gifts point to the ascension of Jesus in a way that is so creative and so unique in God's design. Why else are we important here? Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. I'm important here, you're important here, because you can reach more people than your pastor. Number three, I can reach more people than my pastor. Notice verses 11 and 12. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. In this passage, he gives us four examples of not gifts given to individuals, but actually people who are gifts to the church. So I want to take just a second and look at these four people. You've got the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. First of all, the apostle. What is an apostle? If I was explaining it to somebody who never read the Bible before, I would say an apostle is somebody who wrote the New Testament. There were two requirements for being an apostle. One, you had to, with your eyes, see the risen Christ. And two, you had to be appointed by the risen Christ to this duty. There's about 15 or 16 apostles mentioned in the New Testament. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he was the last apostle. He was the one born late. Uh, seemingly he was the last apostle who actually saw Jesus, uh, who was appointed by Jesus. But the apostles, sometimes people will refer to people who are missionaries as apostles. And I guess you could make the comparison as like a little a apostle because the word apostle means sent one. But in this passage, I believe he's talking about those who actually wrote the New Testament, those who founded the church upon the confession of Christ. Peter was an apostle. John was an apostle. Um, Paul was an apostle. But then he mentions prophets. What is an a prophet? If an apostle wrote the New Testament, the apostles authenticated the New Testament. They authenticated the New Testament. So you have these apostles writing scripture, but what means, how do we know that what they're writing is any more God's word than what you and I would write? Well, the prophets helped authenticate the message by foretelling, by being able to see somehow getting visions from God and seeing into the future. And they, as you read the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, you'll find that they had specific messages that when people heard those messages, they would essentially say, There's, this must be true. There's no way they could have known that had God not revealed that to them. So we have the apostles, we have the prophets. Those two are lumped together grammatically. He says, you've got apostles and prophets over here. Then you've got pastors and evangelists over here. What is the evangelist? Well, the evangelists were not only back then, but they're also now. As you read 2,000 years of church history, there's a plethora of evangelists mentioned throughout the church age of taking the gospel to different parts of the world. 
So evangelists spread the New Testament both then and now. Many of our modern-day missionaries are probably actually evangelists. Church planters, even in America, I would be what I would consider evangelists. We're told to do the work of the evangelist, but there were actually people called evangelists. I don't think when God gave us Ephesians 4 that he was necessarily referring to people who did one-week revival meetings from church to church, and they drove around in a trailer and truck and had tent meetings. All that may work, but it's actually something much, much bigger than that. And then lastly, there are pastors. Pastors teach the New Testament both then and now. So if the evangelists are always going to a new place today, we pastors are staying at the same place today. It's our calling to oversee the church and to teach the church. Now I'll say all that to say the point of verses 11 and 12 is not that these people are the most important. The emphasis of Ephesians 4 is that actually you're the most important. Our job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. People sometimes say, how many missionaries does Bible Center have? I say, well, on a Sunday, we have about 1,500 people who attend. So we have 1,500 missionaries, plus those, those that we have, a couple of dozen that we have overseas. You're called to share and shine the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that I never can. This past week, we received an email from one of our members, one of our young ladies who's part of the Young Professionals group, and she was talking about how God had prompted her heart to step up and become the care director, or to lead in care anyway, as part of the Young Professionals. If you haven't heard about our Young Professionals group, it is, it is bursting at the seams. It's it's just going crazy. We're really, really thankful. They meet up in this classroom at 1030 every Sunday. I love what the men and women are doing in our city. But this young lady sent us an email and she said recently she had a, a relative pass away and she received cards from all over the church. Wanda Casto and her team did an amazing job. Many of you are part of that. But she said, I noticed that in our group, we need somebody to kind of coordinate care within our group so that we know when somebody's family member dies so that we know when, when somebody's hurting. And she said, instead of writing and saying, hey, won't you pastors fix it? She says, I want to be that person. God has laid it on my heart. I want to coordinate the care in our group. And when our, my pastor Mike read that to us, a few of us in his office, we were just blown away. That is exciting. That's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. You can have more of an impact than I ever can up here once a week on a platform on Sunday mornings. Why else are you important to the life of this church? There's a fourth reason in verse 13, and that's this. My presence paints a more complete picture of Jesus. My presence paints a more complete picture of Jesus. Look at verse 13 with me. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You're important because your presence paints a more complete picture of Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, something interesting about verse 14 uh, is, or verse 13 is that there's two images used here, and it's seen for the next several verses. It's the image of architecture and the image of anatomy. It's the image of buildings and bodies. 
He says, on one hand, the church is like a building being built up by God, the church all over the world. And on another hand, the church is like a body growing. It's alive. It's not just an organization, but it's an organism. And he lays out in verse 13 three goals for the church, unity, maturity, and fullness. This idea of unity, he says in verse 13, he's praying that we will come into the unity of the faith. As we said last week, when we see the words the faith in the Bible, most of the time it's not referring to having faith, but it's actually referring to the body of doctrine that makes up Christianity. We earnestly contend for the faith, Jude 3 says. So most scholars believe that in verse 13 he is saying we need to be unified around core beliefs. Now there's a lot over the last 2,000 years, there's a lot of opinions that have seeped into the church. We, we all have opinions. They're like armpits. We all have them and they all stink. We all have different viewpoints. Actually, that's healthy and a message of diversity. But there are core truths about God the Father, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about salvation, about the Bible. There's these core confessions of faith that the church has held to from the Word of God for 2,000 years. And so God is telling us, he is saying, hey, seek unity, find agreement around the things that are core and central to Christianity. I enjoy discussing my opinions about various things with friends, but we're unified around the core doctrines of the faith. And then he says, seek maturity, just like a young man wants to be fully grown, tall and strong. We seek maturity in the church. And then lastly, he says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This points back to Ephesians 1 through 3. The goal of God in saving his people is to create this one people, this one family from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is a full picture of who Jesus is. I think of our church a lot like a mosaic. I saw a picture this week of this uh, surviving Byzantine mosaic in Constantinople. It's made of thousands of little tiles. If you were to, they wouldn't let you do this, but if you were to take your knife and, and pluck out a tile from that mosaic, that little tile wouldn't be worth very much, even if they did know where it came from. But because all the tiles fit together, you have this beautiful picture uh, of Jesus, whether accurate or not. Still, it's Jesus. Our church is much like that kind of mosaic. When God says, I am praying that you will, you will picture Christ in all of his fullness, he is saying that in your unity and in your diversity, when people look at Bible Center, I want them to see Jesus. We are a family, not just a collection of individuals on Sunday morning. I want to invite you before we're done to our next family vision night. Back when I was growing up, we called them member meetings. But, you know, to be fancy these days, we've got to call them, we call them family vision nights. If you're a member, I hope you'll be here to come to your church where you've committed uh, next Sunday night at 6 o'clock. If you're not yet a member at Bible Center, but you consider Bible Center Church your home, this meeting is also open to you. Uh, we're going to be talking about actually one primary thing that God has led us as pastors and our elders uh, and our staff for us for the fall. I hope you'll be here because our goal from Ephesians is to seek the unity of the faith. And I've never been more excited for any family vision night since I've been here. I hope you'll come. 
Quickly, there's two more reasons that you're important. Number five from verse 14, I can teach others what God has taught me. I can teach others what God has taught me. Notice verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Think of a bunch of guys on a raft tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning of craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Verse 15. Instead, he says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, of Christ. God is calling us as his followers to grow out of infancy and to be more grounded in the truths of the Bible. We're not to be like corks just being tossed around in the ocean at will, but we're to know what we believe and why we believe it. And the emphasis of verse 14 and 15 together give us a unique perspective. I've used verse 15. Go back, if you will, to verse 15 on the screens. I've used verse 15 with my kids before. Hey, be sure to speak the truth in love. Now, I'll ask you, is it true that we should speak the truth in love to one another? Is that true? You think it's true? Yeah, absolutely, it's true. We should do that. But verse 15 is not primarily in context telling you, hey, whenever you talk to people, make sure that you say what's honest and you say it nicely. That's actually verse 25, verses 25 through 29 of the same chapter. In context, verse 15 is simply coming right after verse 14. He says, there are people who are going to try to tempt you on TV, on the internet, out in your towns, your neighborhoods. They're going to try to tempt you with truth that isn't actually true. Heresy. And so God is saying, hey, in verse 14, make sure you know enough about the faith, you know enough about my word that you can distinguish truth from error. That's what God's calling us to. That's Bible Center's rich history. That's how we became the church we became 75 years ago. Because a group of people said, you know, we're just going to study our Bibles. If the Bible doesn't say it, we're not going to believe it. And so out of a number of these religious organizations that no longer believed God's word, that no longer believed that Jesus was God, that no longer believed in the virgin birth, that no longer believed in the Trinity, that no longer believed in salvation by faith, Bible Center people gathered for these Bible studies for several years in a shoe store downtown, and eventually we birthed into a church because we wanted to make sure we were all about truth. Verse 15 in context is saying this, Individually, you learn the truth so that not your pastors can just do all the teaching, but so that you can do all the teaching. The goal is for us all to learn so much about our Bibles that we love doctrine, we love truth. And in our community groups, in our homes, at our workplaces, when we're hanging out with friends, we're actually able to share what we're learning from God's word in such a way that blesses other people. I've shared this illustration before. I remember when my oldest daughter, Katie, trusted Jesus, I really made sure of her salvation. She was in grade school. We were in Louisville at the time. And her FCA leader, they had FCA in the elementary schools there. Her FCA leader was, leader was a woman by the name of Miss Sandy. And Miss Sandy had, would ex just pray for these kids and explain the gospel to these kids. And one day, Katie came home and she said, you know, I, I think today at school I really understand the gospel. 
I think today I really became a Christian. And so, you know, as cautious parents, we're kind of asking her questions, making sure she really understood what she believed. And, and she said, Dad, you know, Miss Sandy says the same things that you say. She just explains it a lot better than you. <laughs> You're like, well, I kind of do this for a living, right? Like I'm in seminary in Louisville. But that's the way God works. You see, God can use you to be the next Miss Sandy. God can use you with what you learn to teach the person next to you something that I never can. You know, one of my favorite parts, one of my favorite parts about being a pastor is when you come up to me and tell me what somebody else in this church taught you. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I preached a whole sermon on that, you know, a year and a half ago and, and laid it all out so eloquently. But seldom do people, don't laugh, seldom do people refer to that. So often people refer to what a friend teaches them. That's what we want to be about at Bible Center. You loving your Bible so that you can share your Bible. We get excited about God's Word together. That's why we do core classes. That's why we've got another core class coming up here in a couple weeks. That's why we have guest speakers and one of our seminary professors from uh, Southern Seminary is going to come in October to help preach and teach. This is just the beginning as we dive deeply in God's Word together. You can teach far better than I can. Number six, lastly, why am I important here? Because someone needs my encouragement. Because someone needs my encouragement. Verse 16 is the capstone of this entire paragraph. And he's going to sum up everything he's already talked about. He says, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see the image of the building and the body again. Just as a building is unified by thousands or hundreds of thousands of different parts, and just as your body is unified by hundreds and thousands of bones and muscles and parts, he says the church is made up of unique diverse people. No two people are alike. Even this morning after the first service, one of our members told me about her sons who are identical twins. They got their teeth on the same day. They took their first steps on the same day. And she said, even though they were identical, they were still only a 98% match with their DNA. Nobody's identical, but everybody is important. No person is identical, but every person is important. This is what I want to leave you with today. If you forget everything else, I want to encourage you in this way. This fall, one of the areas where we're trying to see unity really brought to our church around mission, around ministry, about being for the gospel and for the city, is by encouraging every one of our attenders to jump into a smaller group to jump into some sort of smaller group. As Bible Center grows large, we also want to grow small. And as you read the New Testament, the idea of just coming to church on a Sunday and making that the essence of Christianity is really quite foreign to the Bible. But as you read Acts chapter 2, they were praying together and caring for one another and, and they were reading their Bibles together and they were holding one another accountable and encouraging one another in their homes not just in the public meeting space. One of the big reasons we want you to jump into a group, you can sum it all up with this. We want you to have spiritual friends. We want you to have spiritual, I want you to have unspiritual friends too. 
You can impact them with love and the life of Jesus. But I want you to have spiritual friends. Imagine what it would be like to have a group of people, a group of friends, that maybe weekly, maybe every other week, you're, you're meeting together to, to pray together. Maybe just for a few minutes you read the Bible together. Maybe you go through Pastor Mike's study, book studies together that he puts out every spring and every fall. Hey, maybe you, you meet together to, to bless a neighbor or to do some project together. Or maybe you just meet together just to hang out and eat dinner and survive. And that's okay too. In your bulletin this week, there's some creative ways, specific ways that you can jump into groups. One of those ways is a Sunday group. We have a number of Sunday groups that meet around the building. Some of us grew up with more of the, the kind of like the Sunday school model where we attended a service and then we went to Sunday school. For some of us, that really, really fits. You're already here. There's child care, child, children's ministry, both hours. So that really, really works for you. For others, maybe for you ladies, it's jumping into a women's group. Maybe it really does only work for you to come here for one hour. I get that. Totally get that. We've got women's groups. The details, again, are in your bulletin. We've got men's groups, as I said last week. Hey, if nothing else, I have never said this before in my two and a half years here, but if nothing else, it is okay for you, even if it's not an official Bible Center group, if you have people that you already do life with, you have another couple, couple guys, couple ladies, couples, friends, whatever, any, any demographic. There's people you already do life with. What would it look like for you to continue doing life with them, maybe meeting once a week for a meal, and just praying for one another and encouraging one another? Somebody asked me recently, Pastor Matt, are we allowed to do that? It's, it's not an official group. Yes, you're allowed to do that. Listen, we can have control or we can have growth, but we're not going to have both. And we want to set you free to get in your Bibles and with the friends you already have to dive deeply into life together and as spiritual friends to go on this journey and stop being alone. We love you and we want you to grow in God's Word and out of God's Word. I heard a story this week about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis had a community group. They had a name for their group. They called themselves the Inklings. Uh, actually, it was three men, primarily. It was C.S. Lewis uh, there at Oxford. Uh, it was J.R.R. Tolkien. And it was also a man by the name of Charles Williams. All uh, worked in and around Oxford, all writers. And they would meet weekly at this pub. These are the three. Show a picture of the, the restaurant where they meet. Show us the other picture. This is the outside of the restaurant, the eagle and the child. Some of you have been there. Uh, but go back to the previous picture. This is where they sat. This was their corner uh, in the restaurant. They've preserved their corner. This is where they would sat, nearly, sit nearly every week to talk together, sometimes pray together, evaluate fiction together, talk about their writings together. One day, they received the terrible news that one of the three men had died. Charles Williams had died. And C.S. Lewis grieving over the fact that he would never sit at, sit at that seat again with his friend Charles, wrote this about how much he was grieved. He said, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see Ronald's 
reaction to Charles's joke. Ronald is what he call, we call J.R.R. Tolkien. I will never see Ronald's reaction to a Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now means that Charles, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases our appreciation for God and for every soul. We see God in his or her own way. This doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. In other words, he says, I can only know a person if I know them in community. And I believe we can only know Jesus if we know him in community. No person is identical, but every person is important. There are groups all around Bible Center that need your unique self so that we can better picture Jesus Christ. Won't you jump in today? Let me bow and pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of unity. And Lord, I thank you for the beauty of diversity. Thank you for what you're doing in our church family. And I pray, oh God, that as we approach the fall, that all around this room we will have people engaging in men's groups and women's groups and Sunday groups and community groups. And even those who never or at this point don't step into in a group we announce, I pray that we would begin to do life together more often with people who are spiritual friends in love with Jesus. We need each other. Life is hard. And so, God, I ask that today would be a revival of belonging. Today would be a revival of community. And you would use our unique perspectives to point more people to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.